So thank you for being here. I'm going I'm to try to get through this. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, in a section entitled The Sermon on the Mount, and honestly, today we're dealing with one of the more complex, difficult issues in the entirety of Scripture uh, for a number of reasons, but namely, um, it's an issue that is talked about all throughout the New Testament. The authors are wrestling with it, debating about it, but it's something that we don't quite fully understand, and what happens is we approach it in a sort of haphazard way, and then secular culture looks at how we deal with this issue and accuses us of being inconsistent or, at worst, hypocritical. And so hopefully today we will understand um, the, uh, the Bible a little bit better, the kind of overall narrative of Scripture a little better, and importantly, uh, be better equipped for evangelism when those accusations of inconsistency and hypocrisy might arise. So on that, uh, let's dig in. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So two claims are made. Jesus is saying he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he's come to fulfill them. Now already it's kind of difficult because as modern Christians, when we approach the Bible, we divide the scriptures up into two main categories, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those are the two kind of categories, one's before Jesus and then one's after Jesus. But Jews in Jesus' day, they had the Old Testament, and they would have split that up into three major categories, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law they would know as Torah, the prophets they would know as the Nevi'im, and the writings they would know as the Ketuvim. What Jesus is addressing is specifically those first two categories, the law and the prophets. And he's saying, I didn't come to do away with these things or abolish them, but I am fulfilling them. Where it gets tricky for us today is that the law, Torah, is filled, and we've talked about this in the past, 613 rules, commands, and statutes. And there's all these different rules. And if we are being honest with ourselves, when we approach those things, we kind of don't know how to navigate it because there's some of those laws that make sense to us, right? Um, do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Those things make sense. The, the problem is that when you read the entirety of these laws, you encounter a bunch of these ones that are, that are very difficult. So you might read stuff and go, that just sounds so bizarre and strange and weird. I mean, we'll get to it in a, in a minute, but they'll be like, don't steal, don't do this, and remember not to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And you're going like, what, what is that? Additionally, there's ways to dress, ways to shave, all this stuff. And what happens is we end up picking and choosing what parts of Old Testament law we think still are in effect today. So we go, this thing about, you know, shaving your beard a certain way, that's, nah, that doesn't apply. We're in the New, we're New Testament. New Testament Christians, right? But then you go, well, what about the Ten Commandments? 
because they're in there with the 613 as well. And so I may say, okay, like, yeah, do not murder. That's still good. Yeah, Ten Commandments. Let's keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, honor the Sabbath. Yeah, but it's like none of us today, we may think we're following the Sabbath rule as they did in the Old Testament. We're not. Sabbath in the Old Testament's on Saturday. And by the way, if you broke the Sabbath law to a greater degree than normal, you could be killed. Like none of us are doing that. So in a sense, the accusation is we're picking and choosing what we want from the Old Testament. Uh, and this can be seen all over the place. You just Google it. This is a magazine, online magazine. It's in print, but online as well. Uh, Salon.com. And it's the article is 11 kinds of Bible verses Christians love to ignore. The book, good book contains passages about slavery and murder, and evangelicals love to like not acknowledge them. We just, we, we pass by them. And so we don't have a consistent and coherent system that integrates this large portion of the Bible into New Testament Christian living. And it creates a massive problem. So in order to demonstrate how tricky this is, uh, open up your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. That's what will be. Leviticus 19.19. 19. You shall keep my statutes, you shall let your cattle breed with you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seeds, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. So what I'm going to do right now is give you a orientation for the different types of laws that appear in the law. Now remember, when you read the word law in your Bible, both in the, the Old and New Testament, it's for the most part, 95% of the time, not talking about general law, like laws that a society sets up. They're talking specifically about the Torah. The Torah is the law, and the reason why Torah is called law is because there's 613 commands, rules, statutes. That makes up their law. And so as we look at these, I want to give you a taste, sort of a flavor of the diversity of the laws, and you can see how most of us, without knowing it, are sort of picking and choosing without a consistent and coherent system to develop our reasoning. So, for instance, in this one it says, you should not uh, let your cattle breed with two different kinds. You should not sow your field with two kinds of seeds. In other words, if you have a field, it's supposed to have one type of crop in there. Or think of it like this, for those of you who garden, if you have a, garden, a, a, a planter box, you are not supposed to put multiple things in that one planter box. It should be one seed. So you can't mix tomatoes and beets. That's a, that's a no-no in the scriptures. You don't mix the tomatoes and you don't mix the beets. So God would be upset with that. He's already upset that you're growing beets. They're a part of the curse. Remember that. That was firmly established last week. We don't do that. And then, and you don't wear a, a garment made of two kinds of materials. So you can't have, like, some of you might have a, a shirt or a jacket on that's like 50% uh, cotton, 50% polyester. You can come to church like that? It's right there. Speak to the people of Israel, this is Leviticus 15, and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. This was a way to dress. And uh, religious Jews today will still wear some type of these prayer shawls that have these tassels on their garments. Looking around, I'm not seeing anybody. Nobody's doing this. 
the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Now there's one you go, oh, like bring your best to the Lord. That's certainly, God still wants that to apply, at least in some principle, at least. Bring your, bring your best before the Lord. And then right after that, in the same verse actually, in the same verse, Exodus 23, 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So, so you feel the nature of this. You can get anything from do not murder, do not steal, shave your beard like this, uh, bring your best to the Lord, don't boil the goat in the mama's milk. Exodus 21, 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoa. Some of you can't believe this is in your Bible. Some of you got teenagers. You're going, okay. (laughs) Here's the one about the beard. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. And then right after that, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. So the second one, right? You go, well, of course, that's a law that still applies. What type of father would do that? What type of parents would do that? Of course, God still has that law intact. That's not like, oh, that's just Old Testament. That still applies, right? But then right before it, is this verse about how you ought to shave your beard, which is fascinating because it assumes godly men have beards. <laughs> and I, 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 look, I know there's like sometimes, your, men, your wife maybe, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's too pokey. I don't like, you look so much better clean shaven. It's not up to you. <laughs> don't take it up with your husband, take it up with the Lord. It's right there. He assumes it. So do you feel that tension? Do you feel it? If you go in the Old Testament, you look at the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You got 613 laws, and some of them you're like, right on. Some of them, like, that's weird. And some of them you're like, dude, that, we, we, we don't do that. But if you take it seriously, these things would still be in effect. So for instance, there's actually websites still that teach men what, Torah prescribes for cutting and shaving their beards. But none of us are sort of doing that. So what happens is we sort of haphazardly approach these laws and we fall into one of three major categories in interacting with these laws. The first I've already been touching on, and I honestly think it's what the vast majority of Christians just haphazardly fall into. You look at all the laws, you realize there's some that you like, some that you don't, some that you think, well, that's Old Testament, and some that you think, well, that's certainly still New Testament, and you just sort of pick and choose. You sort of pick and choose what you think still applies. And you don't necessarily do this intentionally. It's not like you're going through it and scratching Bible verses out and highlighting the ones you want. You just sort of like quote stuff that resonates with you, and you kind of shy away from the stuff you don't like. I'll give you an example. Um, There's a verse in Leviticus that talks about um, cutting yourself or making engravings, and that's translated tattoos sometimes. So many times, parents have quoted this verse to their children, especially their teenagers, about the Bible saying you're not supposed to get a tattoo. Now, briefly, 
Just preface. If you're a parent and you don't want your, your kid to get a tattoo, you don't need Leviticus. It's just honor your mother and father. Respect my wishes, man. So whatever your thoughts on that, fine, fair enough. But what you are doing in quoting Leviticus to tell your kid your, the Bible says not to get tattoo will later be turned around on you and shown how you're being hypocritical and inconsistent. Because you might have said, don't you know the Bible says don't get tattoos? All the while you were in the backyard in front of your planter box with tomatoes and beets where you just come out of the shower with a clean shaven face after eating breakfast with sausage and bacon wearing cotton and polyester. So it's like, no, you know, you, know, you know, mom, like, dad, you said this right here, but you're not even doing the next verse. So parents, whatever you think about that, that's for you and, and your wisdom to decide. But I'm telling you, you can't pick and choose random stuff out of Leviticus. So many people do that. The other category that people fall into is we'll call it a principle, principalization uh, Means And what, what that does is it looks at the Old Testament law and it says, okay, even though these things don't apply anymore because we're New Testament Christians and that's the Old Testament, there's still principles in them, like timeless truths that go on forever. I'll give you an example of what that might look like. So I started off by saying, we're not even obeying the Sabbath the way they did in the Old Testament. And someone might say, yes, we don't obey the letter of the law and celebrate on Saturday and have all these rules and restrictions on what that ought to look like. However, in the law, a principle is established, namely that men, women, humans, we need rest. And so one day out of the week should be set aside for rest. And some people do that on Saturdays. Some people do it on Sundays. You may have a weird work schedule and you do it on Tuesdays. Okay, so you see how all of a sudden you've taken a Sabbath rule and then made a, a principle out of it. Now, that principle may be wise. So again, it, I am not telling you that if you found a principle out of a Sabbath law that that's completely whack. What I'm telling you is that try doing that for all 613 laws in the Torah. It's not going to work. And no one's, no one's doing that. No one's taking that serious. So you may, t- do, again, you can pick and choose that you can find some principles, but no one's taking serious as a system principalizing all the laws for New Testament believers. Um, so there, there are, even the New Testament will make principles doing this every so, every so often, but no one's making like a coherent system making principles out of all of these things. The next category is probably the most popular way of dealing with the Old Testament law and probably one that many of you have heard of. It's where you divide the law into three major categories. And the three major categories are moral, civil, and ceremonial. So raise your hand if you've heard that. The Old Testament law is moral, civil, ceremonial. Good chunk. If you have raised in the church, you're going to hear that, all right? So what that says is that Jesus in the New Testament fulfills the civil and the ceremonial stuff, but the moral stuff, like the Ten Commandments, still apply. Now, that's a very helpful way of approaching these, because honestly, if you go through... through the law, you look at those 613 laws, you're going to find stuff that kind of falls into a ceremonial category, a civil category, and some stuff that clearly looks as if it's falling into a moral category. So it's kind of a helpful way of looking at it. However, there's some problems. There's some problems. Um, I, I don't think it's 
that system is robust enough and powerful enough to truly deal with the narrative of Scripture. So first, when you look at the law, you will never find those nice, neat categories of moral, civil, ceremonial. I just showed you how one verse goes from the way you should cut your beard to not letting prostitution in your family. And nowhere in the text does it say ceremonial section, moral section. It's just, it's everywhere. You'll get moral, civil, ceremonial, all these different types of rules, some sounding like they're about the sacrificial system, some sounding ceremonial, some about holidays, some about growing crops, and they're just everywhere. There's no categories neatly defined. Secondly, Jesus nor the apostles approach the Old Testament in that manner. None of them say anything remotely to, well, when we look back at the Old Testament, we know there's three different categories, and we can pull apart and put them each into one of those nice, neat boxes. And then thirdly, if you were to ask a first-century Jew, what part of the law is moral? They would say, all of it. If God says to do this, that by nature makes it a moral and ethical command. They wouldn't be able to, it would be outside of the framework of thinking. It's like, no, God said to do it all, therefore it's my moral duty to do these things. And so although the kind of divided law, it's in, in its technical theological terms called the tripartite system, three different categories, although that could be helpful at kind of seeing some of the different types it, it, it's not a coherent system to truly figure out what's still kind of applying to you and what's not. So let's go back to where we began, Jesus' words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So here's our two key words, abolish and fulfill. Jesus is not saying, I'm doing away with this stuff. Because oftentimes you might kind of pick up that attitude. Oh, once Jesus came, he, he did away with that Old Testament stuff. He's not saying it's bad, it's ugly. More importantly, he's never ashamed of it. Oftentimes you as a modern Christian could look back on some of this stuff, and maybe you're with friends who aren't believers, and you get squirmy, oh, some weird stuff in there, I know. Jesus nor the apostles were ashamed of God's law. They delighted in it. The psalmist sings about how he loves the law of God. And so Jesus comes and says, no, I'm, trust me, I'm not abolishing this. I'm not doing away with it. I am, however, fulfilling it. Now, the Greek word here for fulfill is plerao, plerao. And the way this uh, is used in the scriptures, usually has to deal with prophecy. Prophecy. And it's kind of difficult for us to conceptually wrap around our, mind, our, mind, our minds around, but in the same way a prophecy can be fulfilled, Jesus is claiming he is doing that with law. So think of it like this. Uh, the book of Isaiah says that Messiah will come and suffer. The Messiah is going to come and he will suffer. Before that event is fulfilled, you read that and you're looking forward to that prophecy. You're looking forward. 
you relate to that prophecy in anticipation. Once that prophecy is fulfilled, the Messiah Jesus suffered, it's not as if that prophecy went away or was bad or was not good, but now you relate to that prophecy in a different manner. You look back to its fulfillment. So your relationship to the prophecy has changed. One looks in anticipation, one looks back to its fulfillment. Now Jesus is saying he's doing that in some sense with Torah, with those 613 laws. And at the same time Jesus says this, right after this, there's an explosion of verses in the New Testament that say things like this. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's, it's, it's this way of saying he's redeemed us, he's brought us out of, we are under the law anymore. And then there's this strange thing about him being a curse. Um, and that sort of makes the law sound like it's a bad thing, like it curses you. We'll get to that in a little bit because it's misleading. But it's this idea that you've been redeemed from it. And then listen to this one, Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Now, doesn't that sound a bit contradictory? What did, what did we just read? Jesus says, I did not come to abolish. And now all the first Christians are going around saying, Christ is the end. He's the, he ended the law. Done. End. Over. So do you feel the tension now? This has just been 20 minutes of making you uncomfortable with an apparent kind of tension or contradiction in the scriptures. There's this massive, massive tension there. Huge tension. Does the law still apply? Does it curse or does it bless? Are we supposed to follow it still? What parts are we supposed to follow? Huge tension. Okay. In order for us to solve this problem, we have to understand covenants. Covenants play an incredibly important role in the scriptures. The problem is modern people really don't do covenants that much. And by covenant, what I mean is simply is an agreement that two people make with one another. But it's in, in the biblical sense, a covenant, it's not, it's not as if it's ah, just an agreement. We'll see how it goes. It's like, I would rather die than break this agreement. So the closest thing we have to that in our, in our current cultural context is marriage. That's like the closest thing we have. There is a ceremony. It's like a ceremony. It has like a sense there's a ritual going on, and there's witnesses that are giving testimony that this ceremony and this covenant actually happened. And then you what? You sign a document saying this. We'll talk about what an ancient uh, Near Eastern document signing kind of looked like. But it has all these layers. And then you say things like, till death do us part. Because it's a way of saying, I would rather die than break my covenant to you. I'd rather die than break this. It's the closest thing we have to a covenant in, in, in our day. And in the Bible, there's, there's many of these covenants, but the two that are probably most controlling on an operating system level, and what I mean by that is they control the narrative in the Old Testament, their operating system level, is the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is, is one that we've talked about in Genesis chapter 12. And what you need to know before we approach these two covenants is there's two basic categories of covenants, conditional and unconditional. 
a conditional covenant says, I'm going to do these things if you do these things, and let's agree. I do ABC, you do XYZ, and we're good. Or something like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Deal? But if you stop scratching my back, the deal's broken. It's conditional. Then there's unconditional covenants. It's, I will do this no matter what. I will scratch your back no matter what. I will love you even if you are unfaithful. It's an unconditional. All right, let's approach Abraham. This is God making a covenant with Abraham, and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make you a great name so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now quick question. This sound like a conditional or unconditional? It's, this is unconditional. Some people would say, oh, it's conditional because God says go from your country and your kindred. Yeah, but the second Abraham leaves and he leaves that place, it's, it's, it becomes unconditional. God says, I will do this for you. And he's going to do a number of things. He's going to make him a great nation. He's going to bless him. He's going to make his name great so that he will be a blessing. And God is going to bless those who bless him. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then what's been super important for the last several weeks is that in Abraham's family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And we've unpacked that the last couple weeks. We won't go too big into it, but essentially... God, through Abraham's descendants, is somehow going to shine a light to all the nations, a light that all the Gentiles will see, so that non-Jews, people from every corner of the earth, will have an opportunity to know and worship the true and living God. Abraham's family's going to do that. Unconditional promise. Abraham, doesn't matter. God says, I will do this. Now, there's also a sort of contract signing process in some of this. And it's, it's pretty, it's, for modern people, it's going to be grotesque, but practice all across the ancient Near East. If you were to make a covenant with someone, um, one of the ways in which you could sign the document is this process called a blood path covenant. And what you would do is you'd get several animals and you'd cut them in half and you'd separate each half and then both parties would walk between them. They kind of walk down where the blood is draining into, as the image depicts. And essentially, what you're saying is that if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be undone. May I come apart at the seams of my being. May I be torn in half. So, much harder than just signing the wedding document, right? It's like, no, we'll get the best man. He's got to watch you. Cut the animal in half and walk through it. But it's this symbolic action. May I be undone if I break this covenant. The other covenant that's operating system level is the, Mo the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, or the law. And that's where God tells Israel, you need to do all of this stuff, these commands that I'm telling you says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I commanded you today. Now, just really quick. Artie, what can you tell? Is this conditional or unconditional? It's conditional. If you. That's the, there's terms to the contract. If you 
Faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. And it goes on. If you, you can go and read it in Deuteronomy 28. Blessings, 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 if you obey the law. Conditional. You obey, then all of these blessings come to you. But there's a negative side to it as well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, all those 613 then all these curses shall come upon you, and they will overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket be. And it goes on and on and on. And essentially it says, judgment will come if you disobey. Judgment will come if you disobey. So now if you're understanding the two covenants and their operating system, man, there's some next level tension going on. Some huge next level tension. Because God makes a promise to Abraham that his descendants will be blessed and that those descendants will bless all the families of the earth. They will be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. And God says that will happen, unconditional promise. You're going to be blessed, man. But then there's a mechanism by which Israel will bless all the nations. And the mechanism is God's people, Abraham's descendant, doing God's law, being an upright and just people. And when Israel does that, they will be a light to the Gentiles. The problem, Israel isn't always faithful to the law. So God makes an unconditional promise, and there's a mechanism by which they will be the blessing, but they fail to perform the mechanism. And God in the Mosaic Covenant says, if you don't obey my voice, then judgment comes. So God's promises in one covenant are running against his promises in another covenant. You guys following this? It's a huge thing. And you get glimpses of this, by the way. Um, in the Old Testament, when, say, Israel's being disobedient, Israel, uh, maybe, maybe they're not following God and there's a famine or there's war or the enemy's at the gates. You will never hear, like when you're reading your Bible, and then the people of Israel cried out, Lord God, remember your promises to Moses on that mountain. And you said, when we disobey, cursed shall we be and judgment will come down upon us. What covenant do the people cling to when they are in trouble? Oh God, remember your covenant with our father Abraham. You are the God, who's, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very rarely it's like, oh man, you're the God of Moses, man. Remember all that judgment stuff? It's, no, you're the God of Abraham. You promised us things. You cling to that. Huge tension. Massive tension. Okay, how do we deal with this? There's some clues way early in the Bible. This is incredible. All right. So when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham, you're going to do the, you're going to do the, the, the contract signing. Abraham cuts up the animals in the book of Genesis, and then they're kind of getting ready for this covenant signatory process to, to go down. And then it says God puts Abraham to sleep. 
he puts him in a deep sleep. And then it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So think in images. You see the, the, the animals, and then you see the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch is, is supposed to pass through it. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures, what does fire and smoke represent? Presence of God. It's the presence of God. Okay. God puts Abraham to sleep, in a deep sleep. And then when the sun goes down, the presence of God walks between the pieces. You're following this. God doesn't have Abraham make that commitment. It's almost as if God knows your descendants will fail at keeping up their end of the bargain. You won't be able to do this. You have to understand, yes, you are my people, and that's unconditional. But the mechanism by which a light will shine to the Gentiles, it won't happen. Your descendants will fail. So the author of Hebrews later reflects on this and says, like looking back at the covenant with Abraham, he says, for, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. It's like, there's no, God's like, man, there's no one else. So I'm just going to swear by myself and walk this thing alone. Now follow this. What God is setting up very early in the scriptures is that he himself will be faithful to his end of the covenant. But somehow, mysteriously, he will not only be faithful to God's end of the bargain, he will be faithful to the human end of the bargain. He will keep contract on both sides. Now, if you're anticipating, well, how in the world is that going to work? Because Israel has to be faithful to their side in the Mosaic covenant, in the law. How, how is God himself going to be faithful to the human end of the contract? God walks the blood path covenant alone. He will be faithful to his end, and he will come in the person of Jesus and be the faithful Israelite who obeys the law perfectly. He obeys every last requirement of the law until his dying breath so that God himself could be faithful not only to the Abrahamic covenant, but that God himself would be faithful to... God's end of the bargain in the Mosaic Covenant and the human side. There is a faithful Israelite who obeys God perfectly. And when the law is obeyed perfectly, what is supposed to happen? Light to the nations, light to the Gentiles. Just as prophecy, you relate to it in a different manner. So Jesus is saying the law is being fulfilled in my life. Now what happens when Jesus is faithful to his dying breath, what immediately happens? What do you see? There's a temple, and a veil is torn. And it's as if the Spirit of God is now going out to all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. What else happens? Who's at the cross? Man, this is, this is good. What happens? There's a Roman soldier there. And what does he say? This is the Son of God. 
And then what happens after that? The first followers of Jesus get this command to take the gospel to all the nations. And then the book of Acts records that and the gospel goes out further and further and further because God keeps his end and our end, both sides of the contract. And then the scriptures explode with verses like this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So the law is not bad. The law is good. It's a mechanism by which God blesses the world. But the problem is we humans, we're weakened by our flesh. We sin, we don't obey it. So God has done what the law, weakened by human flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We could not do it because we were weakened by the flesh, human nature. So God himself comes as a human being to fulfill it. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, people get confused, and, and oftentimes you hear that the law is bad. It only brought a curse. The law was good. It was meant to bring blessing. The problem, if you disobeyed it, it brought judgment. So what happens? Christ redeems us from the judgment, the curse of the law that was coming our way. The scriptures say, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, right? Because way back in the law, it says, cursed is the man who dies on a tree. Essentially, Christ takes the curse and the punishment that we were to receive and in turn gives us the blessing of his obedience to that covenant. It's this massive exchange. And then remember this one. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. You're like, oh man, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. So how can this guy, Paul in Romans, say he's come to end it? This word end here is the Greek word telos. And telos, it means the end of something, but it, it means the, the intended aim or goal or the end point. So it's not an end as if something is bad and you just need to do away with it. It's the end goal. It's the aim of something. Christ is the aim of the law. Christ is the end goal of the law. The law was supposed to be obeyed in order that the light may go out to all the nations. And that's what occurs with Christ. He is the telos of the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to abolish those prophecies. But now we relate to it in a different manner because it's been perfectly obeyed. And now in the narrative structure of Scripture, the law has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled in Christ and his followers, and the light is going out to all nations. Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Do you see how this Jew-Greek thing comes up right in context to discussion about the law? 
Now that this has occurred, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This key word, guardian, in Greek it's pedagogos. Sounds familiar to an English word we have, pedagogue. And in English, a pedagogue is like a teacher, a tutor, or a mentor. But in Greek, and the historical context, um, it's not necessarily a teacher. It's not saying the law was a teacher until Christ came. The pedagogos in the first century world was the person who took you to the teacher. The law in the Old Testament is the pedagogos. It's the vehicle that takes you to the teacher. And who is the teacher? Christ Jesus. And how does Christ Jesus teach us to live in light of the fulfillment of the law? He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any commandment and any other commandment are summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now God's people interact with that law differently. And the teacher says, now you fulfill the law by loving your neighbor. Now pause. Because at this point, everyone goes, oh man, what a relief. This whole time I was worried about having to figure out which of those Old Testament laws I had to obey, which ones apply, which ones don't. We could just do this love thing. That's easy. We just love each other. I'm already good at that. No, you're not. One of the most horrible things that has developed in Christian churches is this idea that the Old Testament was hard and the New Testament is easy. Old Testament, there's all these laws, man. Good thing you don't live back in the day, in Moses' day, man. You had to obey all these laws. Now we just have the law of love. The problem is, modern people define love in ways that suit them. We just define love in a way that serves us. So we make the standard and bar for defining love real low. Because in our culture, you can hear things like, you know, I haven't been happy in my marriage too long. It's been a couple years. We're unsatisfied. And you know, I'm just going to follow love. I'm just going to follow my heart. And what does that mean? Leaving your wife and kids behind to follow love. How convenient a definition of love for you in that moment. Very convenient. See, for Christians, we don't get to define love. Jesus defines love. And trust me, it's actually a lot harder than what you found in the Old Testament. Because, as we will see in the next several weeks, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. You don't commit adultery, good for you. You have lust in your heart, I see. Guilty. You've heard it said, don't murder. You haven't killed anybody. Great. I tell you, if you have anger in your heart towards someone, you're in danger of hellfire. So what's easier? To not murder someone and shave your beard in a certain way? or to love people in the same manner that Christ did. And Jesus is going to outline that for us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how God's people love. We don't get to define what that looks like. 
if you define love the way you see fit, you're creating God in your image. You're making him bow to your will. Christians submit themselves to Scripture and say, this is the standard. I will strive to this even if I fail, Lord. I will do my best to follow you. And so, kind of theologically, God has a unchanging moral nature. So murder is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. And what you see in the Old Testament is God making a covenant with his people. And in that Old Testament covenant with Israel, some of his moral law is revealed. Some of it. That's why the law is good. That's why, like, when you read the Ten Commandments, you're not like, oh, it says do not murder. Wow, man, that's Old Testament. We don't have to obey that. Because you intuitively know something about that. Now, here's the good news. When you get to the New Testament, God not only reveals moral law, he reveals it with more clarity than you see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's as if you're looking at God's moral law through a foggy window. You know foggy windows on cold days? Icy windows, you can kind of see through it, but you can't see it with clarity. What happens is when Jesus comes, the ice and the fog is removed, where before you thought God's law was don't commit adultery. Now you see it with clarity. It's more than just don't commit adultery. It don't even have lust in your heart. So what happens in the New Testament is there's a magnification of God's law. It actually, be, you see it more clearly. And so you see God's laws for marriage and sexual ethics and loving your neighbor and, and turning the other cheek and praying for your enemies. This stuff just explodes. And it doesn't become easier. It becomes harder. But here's the good news. As, as we tie it all together. The good news is, you are not saved by your obedience to that law. You are saved by grace. And because you've been given grace freely, now you want to live in light of God's law. And you want to serve Him. And you want to do these things. And by the way, this was the case for Israel. One of the conf confusing things that's said often is that in the Old Testament, you, you were saved by works. You had to do all the law. That's not true. What did Israel do to be saved? What did Abraham do? What made Israel Israel? God's grace. In the Old Testament, it says, you're the least among the nations. God saves Israel by his grace, and then he gives them his law to walk in. And likewise, as New Testament Christians, we've been saved by grace, and now he gives us his law to walk in. And we don't do it to earn his acceptance or his salvation. We do it precisely because we're saved and brought into his family, adopted as sons and daughters. And out of a changed heart, we say, Father, I want to walk in your light. I want to walk in your ways. And when you understand that, you can begin to delight in God's law. And you say, it's so good. It's so good. What type of God would say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? What type of God would, be, would say, you know, when you do something good, don't let 
your right hand see what your left hand is doing. Don't let your left hand see what your right hand is doing. Just do it for me. This is his law. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what this actually looks like. So let's stand as we take communion.